0: David McCullough and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of A Man and His Ship, Stephen Ujifusa. Stephen Ujifusa, author of A Man and His Ship, what got you interested in this topic? Well, I've been interested in ships since I was a very young child. Uh, My
1: grandmother told me the story of the Titanic when I was around six. And that's what sort of got me interested in these ocean liners. And the thing that amazed me about these ships is they're absolutely amazing engineering marvels. And they they encompass so many things about the nations who built them, whether it was engineering, whether it was interior decoration, whether it was navigation. Truly these were floating masterpieces and I first saw the SS United States when I was, um, I think um, it was my junior year in high school when we were looking at colleges and we were driving over the Walt Whitman Bridge and the ship had just arrived in Philadelphia. uh, And uh, we were driving over the Walt Whitman Bridge and my grandmother was in the car with us and uh, she said, oh, that's the SS United States. My grandfather and her had traveled on that ship in the 50s. So that's the first time I actually saw it. And uh, I heard about Gibbs before I had watched a TV show. When I was around 10 years old. But uh, yeah, it was amazing actually seeing this liner, even in her current decrepit state. Um, and uh, about five years ago, I uh, was given an offer to write some articles by planphilly.com, which is a publication run by Penn, about the SS United States. And then I began looking into the life of William Francis Gibbs, who was her very eccentric, very driven, very brilliant designer. And I began looking into his life, and I realized this is a man who is on par with John Roebling, the designer of the Brooklyn Bridge, is a, sort of this great American builder. Also, I felt comparable to Frank Lloyd Wright, and that like Frank Lloyd Wright, he was self-trained. Uh, Gibbs only took a few classes at Harvard and did very badly. These are engineering classes. He did very badly in his engineering classes. and. Wright only took a semester of two of uh, architecture at Wisconsin. So both of them were sort of these self-created builders. So when again, looking into the life of Gibbs, I realized there's a story here. It's not just about a ship. It's about this brilliant individual and this time in America when we could build anything, when we could build the finest, fastest ocean liner in the world.
0: For people who don't know, what is the SS United States doing in Philadelphia?
1: Well, the SS United States came here in 1996, and uh, it was one port that would take her. She had been stripped of a lot of her interior fittings over in Turkey uh, in preparation for rehabilitation as a cruise ship, but that never happened. So one of her owners brought her here uh, in the hopes of having her turn into a casino. Well, that didn't happen. So she's been sitting here ever since. And about two years ago, a group called the SS United States Conservancy, which is a national nonprofit which has been advocating for the preservation of the ship was given a very large grant by Jerry Lenfest, who's a famous uh, Philadelphia philanthropist, to purchase the ship and she was almost sold for scrap by her then owners, a uh, Norwegian Cruise Line, so it was a real miracle that she is with us today. What's so special about the ship that it deserves to be preserved? This ship, first of all, can't be replicated. Uh, this ship was, is one of the very last transatlantic liners left. I mean, she was basically built, as one maritime historian said, she was built like a cathedral. She was built to last forever. And most ships of this type, transatlantic liners, lasted only 20, 30 years before they were worn out or obsolete. This ship has lasted 60 years, uh, 40 of which have been in layup, which is pretty incredible. But this ship uh, has so many, this ship carried a million passengers during her 17 years of service from 1952 to 1969. She carried royalty such as Philadelphia's own Grace Kelly. Uh, She carried uh, JFK. She carried Marilyn Monroe. She also carried thousands of immigrants who are coming over from Europe after the war seeking a new life. Lots of middle-class families vacationed on her. And uh, the ship just has so many memories for so many Americans. And this ship was the fastest ocean liner ever built. She dates from a time when speed really mattered and people took ships to get from point A to point B and not just a cruise for 7 days around the Caribbean the this ship uh was basically was featured in many people's very important moments of people's lives they were saying goodbye to friends and relatives uh they were uh greeting uh people for the relatives they we had immigrants coming over to America for the first time so it was a, it was this ship had a lot of significance for a lot of people what was the experience like being on a ship like that well it was uh... in first class um, first of all the ship had three separate classes which today is very unusual most ships cruise ships today, you have one class back then the ship was divided into three classes first class was in the center part of the ship and it was very elegant very formal uh... this is the sort of place where uh... you would if you were traveling first class the mid fifties you would almost Certainly, run into celebrities like, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. They were the most prominent passengers on board. They booked four times a year. Uh, they had a suite, which they basically redecorated for their four-day voyage, and they'd let their pug dogs run around. Uh, you had to wear black tie for dinner, but also compared to today's cruise ships, it was a relatively uh, staid experience. You didn't have constant entertainment. You pretty much read a book. You relaxed. You maybe watched a movie in the cinema. Or you um, uh, just chatted and met new friends. Uh, dinners were extremely elaborate. And there was dancing in the evening. But overall, it was a pretty sedate experience. Uh, cabin class was in the stern. That was, you had a lot of middle class travelers, a lot of families, vacationing families. Uh, tourist class in the front of the ship, this is where the most motion was felt. This is where you were really bounced around. You had a lot of immigrants coming over, especially from Germany. And you also had uh, tourists, uh, budget tourists. You had students going over to Europe for study abroad, including Bill Clinton, who was on his way to his Rhodes Scholarship. He took the SS United States.
0: So ordinary people would
1: take it. It wasn't just for rich people. Oh, it was for all, all walks of life. All walks of life were
0: on that ship. How much did a ticket cost?
1: Well, uh, first class, if you wanted the best suite, it would probably cost the equivalent of around $9,000 per person one way, which is a lot of money. Uh, everything was included. and was this is
0: in 1950s dollars or today's This dollars? is in today's
1: dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1950s 50s dollars, if you wanted the top suite, it would probably be around $1,100 one way. So this was not cheap transportation if you're going first class. And I've interviewed a number of uh, stewards who worked on the SS United States, including uh, Bill Krudner, who lives at, near Scranton, Pennsylvania. And uh, he's retired out there with his wife. And he was saying that, When you're serving people on the SS United States, there was no room for error, because these were people who were, who could easily switch ships if they didn't like what they, they had, and um, it was a very. The ship was also known for being extraordinarily clean. The floors were buffed every night. The metalwork was always polished, and uh, it was a definitely a a different experience than cruising
0: today. You said it was a four-day voyage. Four and a half days. Uh, Where would they leave from? Where would they? come back, where, where would they end up in England?
1: Uh, they would uh, leave from New York, and then she'd sail across the Atlantic. She'd call in Le Havre, France, and drop off passengers bound for Paris or Europe or the European continent. Then she'd sail to Southampton, England. And during the winter, she would sometimes call up Bremerhaven, Germany. And that's where she would uh, pick up or drop off uh, troops stationed in occupied Germany. And uh, so she did carry a lot of troops. She was actually built first and foremost as a troop transport. Should war break out, this luxury liner that could carry 2,000 passengers could be converted into a 14,000 soldier troop ship, able to sail 10,000 miles without refueling. So basically Gibbs designed her as a troop ship first and then put the luxury appointments inside her. So within 48 hours, if war should break out, this ship could be converted. So uh,
0: it, was a, it, was a mul- it was served a dual purpose. I want to ask you about that, and the government involvement. But one, one more thing, how often would it go back and forth across the ocean? How many uh, trips in, in a year or a month? Uh, she would make tw- uh, tw- uh, two trips a month.
1: And uh, so yeah, four and a half days each way. Although on her maiden voyage uh, in July 1952, when she took the Blue Ribbon speed record from the Queen Mary, she did uh, the eastbound voyage in three days, 10 hours, and 40 minutes, which is incredibly fast. The, she beat the Queen Mary's best time by 10 hours. How far is that on land speed? That's about, um, she made 35.59 knots on her maiden voyage. That's about 41 miles per hour. So imagine something the size of the Chrysler Building turned on its side, fitted with the most luxurious appointments, fit for the Waldorf Astoria, then going through the ocean at over 40 miles an hour.
0: How does that compare with how ships go now?
1: Uh, ships today can only go about, generally go about 20 knots, which is about 23, 24 miles per hour. So the SS United States was incredibly fast. What made it so fast? Well first of all she had the most powerful engines ever put into a passenger ship. She had four steam turbines which were later used in the Forrestal class aircraft carriers. These engines could produce 240,000 horsepower plus and so that's incredibly powerful. The Queen Mary, her nearest competition, only could do 150,000 horsepower, which is still very powerful. Uh, she had a very fine hull. Very, she didn't take up a lot of displacement. Although she was thousand feet long and 100 feet wide, but al- below the waterline, she was very. She had a very fine, thin hull. What made that possible was that above her, on, this, on her upper decks. Her upper decks are made of lightweight aluminum. She was the largest use of aluminum uh, in any construction project up to that time. So that's what made the light, you know, her lightweight high power. Whose idea were all these design changes? Uh, William Francis Gibbs, who designed the SS United States, had been working on a lot of these design ideas and warships during World War II. He was an absolutely brilliant project manager. He designed or was responsible for 70% of all uh, Navy ships built during World War II, including uh, the, the famous Liberty ships. That was his concept. Uh, the, these Liberty ships were the humble cargo ships that carried so many troops and cargo across the, uh, the Atlantic and across the Pacific and could be churned out like Model Ts. And so he'd been, and he also worked on a number of uh, destroyers. He worked on a number of cruisers, so he basically with the SS United States. He uh, basically had done something no naval architect had done before. Combined the size and luxury of a passenger liner
0: with the speed and maneuverability of a Navy destroyer. And you you said in the book that the the design elements of the SS United States were a secret, like naval secret, until the 1970s?
1: Yes. uh, William Francis Gibbs was a very secretive individual. Uh, His offices in New York had just this maze of security gates and surveillance because he was doing a lot of Navy work. So he gave this ship the same protection that Navy vessels uh, had. He was also just terrified of rivals stealing his ideas. And uh, and it's the ironic thing. He'd done some of that himself in the 1930s, before the SS United States was built, he went aboard a French ship called the Normandy, snuck on board when she docked on her maiden voyage, and basically ran around the ship for three hours evading the, the French <laughs> crew members, uh, jotting down uh, readings and jotting down what shape the hull was
0: underneath the waterline. So he, he basically wanted to prevent others from doing what he had done. So you say um, Gibbs decided to ensure the secrecy of the ship's advanced technology by making it a national security matter, even during commercial operations. One of the agreements with the, the United States lines was plans and data concerning this ship are considered to be confidential and classified as would be the case of a combatant naval ship. So he did that just so his rival builders wouldn't get his secrets?
1: Yeah, that plus, you know, from also there was genuine concern that, you know, that foreign powers might be interested in this ship. He did say this is a ship that Joe Stalin would love to look at and he can. <laughs> and uh, if you were a passenger on the SS United States And you want to say, hey, I want to see the engine room. Well, you could do that on other ships. You can go on to the Queen Mary or the Liberté and say, I want to see the engine room. Sure, go take a look. You couldn't do that on the SS United States. Apparently, the only passenger that got clearance to see the engine rooms was the Duke of Windsor, which is kind of ironic, because he was suspected of being a Nazi during the 30s. But (laughs) because he was such a high profile passenger and the United States Alliance was happy to have him, they let him do whatever he wanted. He would also show up on the bridge, which is also off-limits, and show up early in the morning dressed basically in his famous you know, argyle socks and chat with the captain and the officers. And uh, one of the officers said, officers said he told great golf stories.
0: But apparently he didn't bore the officers. Uh, you say in your book that uh, William Gibbs uh, lived with his parents at 1733 Walnut Street in Philadelphia, which is just a couple hundred feet from where we sit right now.
1: Yes, Gibbs uh, was, grew up as kind of a poor little rich boy. His father was uh, a self-made financier who made a lot of deals with uh, Peter Widener of the famous trolley car fortune. So the Gibses were had a fantastic amount of money in the late 19th century. Gibbs was born only a few hundred feet from here. Oh, sorry. He was, grew up here only a few hundred feet from here, but he was born on North Broad Street. Uh, in a big mansion there. And then when he was a teenager, his family bought a house on Rittenhouse Square, which was a prized address. And at the time, his father was rumored to be worth about $15 million, which in 1900 was a fabulous fortune. But he was a very uh, shy, introverted child. Uh, he first got his inspiration to be a naval architect when he went with his father to the Cramp uh, shipyard on the Delaware River. And there was this big liner being launched in 1894 called the St. Louis. It was the biggest American ship built at the time. And it was financed by one of his, another one of his father's business partners, a gentleman called Clement Griscom. And the St. Louis uh, was launched. She slid down the ways into the Delaware River and the crowds were cheering. And little William Francis Gibbs was just overawed by this liner going and being launched. And he said, from that moment, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. The problem was that his parents were not particularly, especially his father, were not particularly enamored with the idea of their son being a naval architect. They wanted him to be something respectable and proper considering their class and society. So Gibbs went to Harvard in 1906, um, took some engineering classes. But the tragedy that hit him was his senior year, his father went bankrupt. And they lost their big mansion on Rittenhouse Square. He had to drop out. And Gibbs would later say, if not for the fact that my father had gone bankrupt, I never would have been driven, as driven as I am. He said, I would have amounted to absolutely nothing. And he made a deal with his father. Uh, his father said, I still want you to go to law school, because you need to support this family now. So Gibbs worked his way through Columbia Law School and then started practicing as a lawyer in New York. And he just hated it, absolutely hated it. And he and his brother would um, work in the attic of their parents' new, much smaller house in Haverford, uh, right near the train station. And on weekends, they came up with these designs for a new superliner. And they ended up selling these plans to J.P. Morgan, Jr. in 1916. And they did so with the help of a famous admiral called David W. Taylor who looked at William Francis Gibbs' work initially said, well, it's clearly the work of an amateur, but this kid has talent. And David W. Taylor would eventually be Gibbs's mentor, would teach him everything he needed to know about naval architecture. So Gibbs ended up trying to, pr- I think a lot of his life was trying to prove his father wrong, that he could make a living as a naval architect. And ultimately, he became a very successful businessman. And he was known, as someone said about him, He was not the man who necessarily designed ships, but he caused them to be designed. He was kind of like Steve Jobs in that he would come up with a concept. I want the ship to look this way. I want it to be beautiful. I want it to have these specifications. And then he'd watch his subordinates, who were very talented, like a
0: hawk, to make sure that everything was just as he said it would be. Can you explain the, the link from William Gibbs, the chain of people, to the Titanic? Oh, well, it's, it's an interesting connection. Um, the uh, Titanic
1: was uh, owned by the White Star Line. And the White Star Line, contrary to what a lot of people think, was even though it was a British-based company, she was actually totally owned by the Americans. Uh, she was owned by a conglomerate that was put together by J.P. Morgan Sr. And when the Titanic sank in 1912, J.P. Morgan who just had been dying to control the North Atlantic sea lanes, especially the very lucrative immigrant trade. When that ship went down, he was so devastated that some people say it might have caused his death. And one of his partners, J.P. Morgan's partners, was Clement Griscom, who I mentioned earlier, the famous Philadelphian, who also died a few months after the Titanic because he was so shaken by it. But uh, the White Star Line was eventually taken over by a gentleman called Philip Franklin, who took over the White Star Line, took over the um, other shipping lines of Morgan's Combine. After the disaster, he reorganized it. And Philip Franklin was a very good businessman. Philip Franklin was the man who helped hire Gibbs initially to work for the Morgans. And then Philip Franklin's son, General John Franklin, eventually took over this conglomerate that was known as the International Mercantile Marine in the 1930s uh, it was renamed the United States Lines, and that was the company that, bec- that ended up operating the uh, SS United States. But there's one otter connection, and that the biggest shareholder of the United States Lines was Vincent Astor, of the famous New York real estate family. Vincent Astor, uh, in April of 1912, was at Harvard and uh, received word that the Titanic had gone down. He rushed to New York dropped everything he was doing, took the train from Boston to New York, and heard that his father and his new stepmother, who was only 18 years old, his father had married a much younger woman, um, he had received word that his stepmother had survived, but his father had died in the disaster. So Vincent Astor uh, dropped out of Harvard himself. And uh, basically, he reco- his father's body was recovered from the North Atlantic and there was a big gold watch that his father always wore. He restored that watch to working order and then wore it for the rest of his life, including on the maiden voyage of the SS United States. And he and his wife were on that trip, and Vincent Astor was always kind of a gearhead himself, a very, very rich gearhead. So he took a very strong interest in the construction of the SS United States. So you had kind of this weird historical irony where you have the son of the man who was uh, who the most prominent passenger of the Titanic crossing on the SS United States 40 years later, going the opposite direction. <laughs>
0: and his father never made it. Can you explain how William Gibbs went from just this guy doing drawings in his attic with his brother to actually being able to build ships? I mean, who did he, how did he get that first hurdle where someone would take him seriously?
1: Well, it was actually uh, Admiral Taylor who took him seriously. And uh, when he was doodling in his uh, parents' attic, he realized that he needed to get some sort of in. So he had a college friend, apparently, who was um, involved with General Electric. And General Electric was always interested in designing ship engines. And so he showed his plans to General Electric. General Electric was impressed with with these plans. And then Admiral David W. Taylor, who was chief constructor of the US Navy, looked at these plans and said, look, no American has dared to build something this big. Because previously, uh, superliners were the domain of the European governments and European shipping lines. America was not particularly interested in this. So, he um, got a lot of training from David W. Taylor, but he got his real big break uh, in in the late teens, early 20s, when he was given the task of rebuilding a giant German vessel called the originally called the Vaterland. She was the biggest ship in the world at the time. The Vaterland was stuck in, a, in New York when the war broke out, World War I broke out. She was seized and trashed and basically turned into a troop transport. And then after the war was over, no one knew what to do with the, with the, the ship that had been renamed the Leviathan. It was this big German sea monster, basically, bigger than the Titanic. And Gibbs, had, had through his own study, had such an encyclopedic knowledge of ocean liners that he was given the task of reconditioning the Leviathan. And he produced these blueprints, these restoration plans, which were so detailed um, that everyone was impressed. And the Leviathan was rebuilt as a trash troop transport into an American luxury liner. He also learned at that time that he couldn't just be technically smart. He was a very shy, painfully shy man. Uh, And he realized when rebuilding the Leviathan I've I got to get a mouth on me or else I'm not going to get anything done. So according to one story from his brother, when they boarded the uh, Leviathan, which had been totally trashed and was totally neglected in 1920, and they were looking over this, this ship, which had, they were going to try to tra- transform back into a luxury liner, Gibbs looked at the ship, looked at uh, this team of men, and unleashed a barrage of extraordinary curse words and <laughs> dispatched everyone to their task. So, and he was known for the rest of his life as someone who had a really bad mouth. In fact, that he um, in the fifties, after he designed the SS United States, he was still he remained active almost to the end of his life. He uh, had a very early version of a car phone, and back in the nineteen fifties, uh, car phones were transmitted over the radio. And the FCC threatened to take away his license uh, several times because he used so many uh, so many four letter words. Uh, but he was a uh, I think he, a lot of it was an act. It was a persona to get things done, and uh, hence his
0: brilliance as a project manager and as a designer. You have a scene in the book where he shows up basically unannounced to J.P. Morgan Jr.'s office and, and sticks around until Morgan meets with him? Uh, well, yeah, that was
1: actually um, uh, that was someone with General Electric who he showed up with. Um, but yeah, he was very persistent. He was that sort of person. And that, that trait he kept for the rest of his life.
0: Now, also, you uh, when he met with General Taylor or Admiral Taylor, Admiral Taylor g- agreed to build a one twenty-fourth size model of the ship. That, yes. Uh, and did you learn about that? I mean, is that the way the Navy usually does it? They build. A, and how big is one twenty-fourth the size of the actual ship? Oh
1: boy, I think that was. I think it was around 24 feet long. And so they built this pine. I mean, Admiral David W. Taylor was the first man to use a towing tank to test hulls. And uh, it had never been done before. Previously, um, you know, before the early 20th century, a lot of shipbuilders just adapted you know, wooden hulled ship designs to iron and steel. And Admiral W. Taylor said, no, no, no Let's see if we can f- build these hulls that could be as you know, efficient through the water as possible. So, yeah, David W. Taylor basically took this initial concept. This is the ship that eventually, 40 years later, would become the SS United States after a number of refinements and would test it in a variety of sea conditions. Can it make a certain speed, you know, using this amount of power?
0: And he was just able to, Gibbs was just able to persuade people. He had no credentials and just some drawings he did. Uh, At that point,
1: yes. I mean, he eventually would build up the credentials. But I think he was, I think it was just his determination and nerve that really, you know, got him in the doors. Plus, he used some connections. I mean, his father, even though he was bankrupt, his, he did have some connections that I think he used from his father. When did he go from just being a guy with some drawings to actually having a company? Uh, it was in 1922. After he finished rebuilding the Leviathan, they opened Gibbs Brothers. Uh, he and his brother were um, partners, and his brother was kind of the man behind the scenes. His, Gibbs was very much the personality. He was, he was very, he could be the person who could make presentations and was the creative side. His brother, Frederick, who was a very kind of quiet introverted fellow, he was the fellow that was the business guy. He could do the math. He could make the business pitches. So the two of them started their own company after having proven themselves rebuilding the Leviathan. And then they kind of struggled throughout the 20s because they were trying to build passenger ships, and there wasn't a huge market for passenger ships in America. It wasn't until FDR came into office in the early 30s, and FDR looked at the you know, pitiable state of the U.S. Navy at the time, and said, we need to rebuild our fleet. Let's start with the destroyers. And Gibbs used his only connection in the uh, U.S. Navy to say, hey, I'm the man to help build these new destroyers, and use these new engines that hadn't been used before, high-pressure, uh, high-temperature steam turbines, and these destroyers that were unveiled in the early thirties were so fast and so maneuverable, they could beat anything that the British had. And uh, the, the these navy contracts were what put Gibbs Brothers, which later became Gibbs and Cox, on a very firm financial footing. And he realized, Gibbs realized, he could make a lot of money and do very well as a government contractor. What was the Malola? The Malola was a the first passenger ship that he designed from the. Uh, keel up, and she was uh, built in the mid 20s here in Philadelphia at Cramp Shipyard. And she was built for the San Francisco to Hawaii trade. And it was kind of ironic that the first, where Gibbs first saw a ship launched, was where the Malolo was built. And he was so exacting with the construction of the Malolo. She was not big by European standards, but by American standards, she was big. And he was also very he was one of only the best materials was drove Kramps nuts, uh, because they were used to change orders and just kind of skimping on things. He also demanded that the Malolo would be much better compartmented, much safer than any European ship built. Now, the interesting thing that had happened was well there are two things that happened. The Gibbs was so exacting and so demanding with the construction of the Malolo for the Matson line that Kramp's shipyard ended up going bankrupt because they ended up going on having all these cost overruns and Gibbs wouldn't allow these change orders. He said, no, no, you, this is what you said. I'm not going to accept any changes. Um, but the other thing that happened that almost cost the Gibbs brothers their lives was that in 1927, when the Malolo was going on her trial runs off the coast of Nantucket, uh, it was dense, dense fog. And then a, a freighter came barreling out of the fog, and this is before radar, and ran the Malolo right on her side and tore a gigantic gash uh, into this brand new ship's side. This was the equivalent of the damage that sank the Titanic in 1912. All the watertight doors closed, The Malolo was taking on tons of water. But she was so well designed that she stayed afloat. And Gibbs was, this this is a huge vindication for Gibbs's emphasis on safety. And he said that any shipping company It skimps on safety. It's basically a criminal to do. Uh, The interesting things that um, that happened is that in 1956, uh, almost you know, about you know 30 years after this collision, another ship uh, with much less, much less, uh, with inferior safety standards, a ship we all know called the Andrea Doria, was rammed in those exact same waters, an exact same sort of collision, and she sank. And Gibbs basically said, "See, you know," <laughs> he said. All those years later, he said, "See, you know, this
0: is this is what happens when you <laughs> skimp on safety." Did the sinking of the Titanic change design ship design for the transatlantic ships? It did. It very
1: much so. First of all, all companies who previously said, "Oh, we can, there's no way we can cram enough all the, all the lifeboats needed for all passengers onto our ships," w- within a few months they changed their minds, and crammed as, all the lifeboats they could onto their their ships to accommodate all passengers. Uh, another design change was uh, watertight compartments were extended all the way up to the hull, all the way up to the hull, uh, versus the Titanic, which the bulkheads only went up part of the way up the hull, which caused basically the ship to fill up like an egg, like a like a uh, ice cube tray. The water would spill over, and uh, also the United States. Uh, she had not just a double bottom like the Titanic, but a double hull. So basically, if the iceberg had hit the the United States in the same way it hit the Titanic, it would have just opened that first layer of hull, but not the second. And the United States had 20 watertight compartments, and she could float with any five of them open to the sea. The Titanic had 16. She could float with any two of them flooded, or the first four. Now, when that iceberg hit, it opened the first five, and that caused her to sink.
0: At the time, then the Titanic, were there American passenger ships, or were they all English? Uh, there were American passenger
1: ships, but they were most of them had been built ten years before and were smaller, very out of date, and not particularly fashionable. Like the St. Louis, which I mentioned earlier, that was the ship that Gibbs saw launched in eighteen ninety-four. Uh, she was still in service at the time, but. She was only one quarter the size of the Titanic, and by that time, uh, passengers weren't that interested in you know last year's model. Every and that that's one thing you see constantly throughout the building of these ships is that these ships come online and they're brand new and they're fantastic, but within ten years they're out of date or also Rans. And uh, the United States, when she came online in 1952, was so modern and so sleek. She made the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth, which were the British ships, they looked old, people thought they looked old-fashioned.
0: They just seemed kind of stuffy. So the, at the time of the Titanic, was that when there was the Mauritania and the Lusitania?
1: Yes. Um, the Mauritania and the Lusitania were built in, completed in 1907. And they were built with a gigantic subsidy from the British government. And uh, the Cunard Line, which operated them, they were being threatened by a takeover from the same company, the American company, Controlled by J.P. Morgan, and one of the ways that the uh, Cunard line basically said we don't want to be taken over by the Americans is that they lobbied the British government for a large subsidy to build the Lusitania and the Mauritania. And when they came out in 1907, they were not just the biggest, but they were also the fastest ships. And J.P. Morgan saw this happen, and he was like, "I don't want if Cunard is basically going to tell me, you know, basically rub it in my face." I'm going to build three ships of my own that'll be bigger and more luxurious, and I won't need any subsidy. And he built three ships, the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. And the Titanic was,
0: we all know what happened to that one. Did they all fly under British flags? They flew under British flags, yes. They were American-owned? Yes, yes. And then the, the next, was the next generation after that the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth, or where, where do they fit into the picture? Well, the, uh, Qu- the Queen Elizabeth and the
1: Queen Mary, uh, well, the Queen Mary came online in the 30s, and this is a time when a lot of ships built before World War I were being retired, like the Olympic, which is the Titanic's famous sister ship, uh, the Aquitania, the Berengaria, the Majestic. These ships were starting to be retired. They were just getting old. And starting in the early, early 30s, Uh, Thanks to, once again, another large infusion of government money from the governments of Italy, France, and Germany, and England, they began building this new generation of superliners that were faster and bigger. And uh, the ship that started it all was a German ship called the Bremen, and she came into service in 1929. And Gibbs very much admired the Bremen. In fact, you can see a lot of resemblance between the United States and the Bremen. He liked these German ships that were low-profile, sleek, racing ships. And so the Bremen took the Blue Riband from the Mauritania.
0: What is the Blue Ribbon?
1: Oh, the Blue Riband was the uh, prize for the fastest ship across the Atlantic, which was a matter of great international prestige. And the British were used to holding it for a long time. This new German ship comes and takes it away, and then the British say, well, we're going to build the Queen Mary. The Italians say, well, we're going to build a contender called the Rex. The French say, we're going to build the Normandy. So there was this buildup during the 30s, which is strange because the world was going through such a great economic depression at the time. But these governments were subsidizing their shipping companies. So the goal was speed? The goal well, was speed. Right
0: now, a cruise ship it goes out for a certain number of days and is more leisurely, but speed was important then? The, the goal was speed. I mean, the the ship that had the fastest crossing was
1: usually very popular because people back then wanted to get from one uh, side of, you know, destination from point A to point B as uh, quickly as they could. And also, it, these ships are kind of like racehorses, they're kind of like national symbols. I mean, the SS United States, which came online in, the, in 1952, was kind of like the sea biscuit of her time. I mean, people were cheering for it, people, it was a big deal. People were betting on their favorite horse, their, their nation's ship. And uh, these ships would often f- fight with each other in a way, you know, shaving a few minutes off each other's time, you know, trying to capture this prize. And um, when the United States took the blue ribbon in July of 1952, the British response was, well, uh, we don't know what the Queen Elizabeth can do. She hasn't been opened up yet. And, but the captain of the SS United States, he was not allowed to tell how fast this ship could, could really go. But he said rather smugly to the British press, Uh, We were just cruising. I have more power up my sleeve. And in fact, it turned out there was no way that either the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary could come close to her absolute top speed.
0: Why couldn't he tell people how fast it could go? Uh,
1: Because like the ship's design, it was a military secret.
0: I have to read this one little part in here about the Queen Mary where um, someone from the White Star Line, oh, the chairman of Cunard, Sir uh, Percy Bates, met with King George V. And said, uh, he, your, your Majesty, the Cunard Line is building the best, biggest, speediest ship in the world and requests your gracious permission to name her after the most illustrious and remarkable woman who has ever been Queen of England. And he meant Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. And the king thought he was talking about his wife, Mary. <laughs> 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 and th- that's how she got her name. And traditionally, Cunard ships have
1: been named, had, had the name... Uh, I.A. at the end of their name, so Cunard was saying, oh, Victoria is perfect. But King George V, being a former naval, Navy cadet himself with an intense interest in ships, said, well, how about my wife? My wife will be absolutely delighted. <laughs> so, uh, but this is a time when ships had, these, na- these national flagships had very patriotic or awe-inspiring names, which is a contrast from today's cruise ships that often have kind of names that are kind of based in fantasy or escapism, This is a time when ships were given names like the United States, America, Leviathan, Majestic, Berengaria, uh, Olympic, Titanic, uh, Vaterland. It was it was a matter of national pride.
0: So, and the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth were big troop ships during the war, World War Two.
1: Yes, uh, in fact, their success as troopers was what gave the United States government the but finally convinced them to subsidize a shipping company to build their own troop transport. The Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mary were taken over by the British government in 1940, I believe, uh, stripped of their luxury fittings and turned into troop transports. These two ships carried over a million and a half soldiers, mo- many of them American, and participated in the D-Day buildup where they would carry 15,000 troops at a time. These are ships that could carry 2,000 passengers and 1,000 crew. So imagine them now carrying 15,000 soldiers. It was a, I've spoken to a couple of people that sailed over to Europe on the D-Day buildup on, on either the Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mary. And it was a very tense time. I mean, the ships were so crowded. The, they had to eat in shifts. And um, they were so fast, they were 30 knots plus, that no escorts could keep up with them. So there was no protection. And
0: if a U-boat had spotted them, they were, <laughs> they, all they had was their speed. So they, could they evade submarines through their speed, or was it just luck that they didn't through come
1: Through speed across? and zigzagging, which made the experience even more scary for the troops, because the ship was always going from side to side when you're zigzagging at 30 knots. So, <laughs> Where are the Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mary now? The Queen Mary is currently in Long Beach, California, where she is a stationary attraction, hotel, convention center, and dining venue, and a museum. And she, along with the SS United States, is one of the very few that survived. Uh, The Queen Mary was taken out of service in 1967. And the late 60s was a time when the passenger jet had arrived on the scene and was just devastating all the great ocean liners. The 50s was a boom time for passenger ships, but the first jet came on the scene, first passenger jet, crossed the Atlantic in 1958, and that was basically the end of the age of the transatlantic liner. And uh, one by one, a lot of the great old ships were stripped and sold for scrap. The Queen Mary was one of the lucky ones. She was one of the very few lucky ones. She was purchased and renovated into a museum, and she's permanently moored. The Queen Elizabeth was less lucky. She, uh, caught fire in Hong Kong Harbor in the early 70's when being converted into a floating university
0: and destroyed. Um, so how did the SS United States come to be then? When did uh, William Gibbs say, okay I'm gonna build this ship, the war's over now, we're gonna
1: do this? Well he uh, met with uh, General Franklin, who was president of the United States lines, and his brother at the Broad Street Club in New York and imagine the scene, the war is over, the troops are coming home, you have troop ships coming in our our boys home, great welcomes, you know. we did it, we just beat the Axis powers. And William Francis Gibbs and his brother Frederick sit down with General Franklin and say, we want to build an American superliner. What do you think now? You know, Do you think we can get a way for the US government to subsidize the construction of a superliner? And eventually General Franklin looks at these plans, he confers with his board, including Vincent Astor, and said, OK, we think we can do this if the ship is designed to be a troop transport. That way we can get a subsidy. So it was basically, it took the government's willingness to sign off on it and the Truman's, Truman administration's willingness to sign off on it that made this ship possible. She couldn't have been built just as, just by the, the company alone.
0: So the shipping company had to agree in exchange for this money to just make it available as a troop transport anytime it was needed? Exactly. And uh, the designs are finalized in
1: the 1950. So imagine four years of design work between 1946 and 1950. That's how meticulous the, the design work. This is before the age of computers. Everything was done by hand. All the, the drawing work was done by hand. They had model tests. They had wind tunnel tests for the uh, smokestacks. They had uh, water tank tests for the propellers. So everything, the ship was totally designed by hand. And then the keel was laid in 1950 and she was completed uh, by Newport News Shipbuilding in June of 1952, and she would had two sets of trials, all
0: of which were, all the specs for those trials were top secret, although the press was allowed to come on board. Now, In your book, you say there was a woman who designed the propulsion system.
1: Yes, the uh, design crew, or the design team from Gibbs and Cox was 50 people, and there was one woman. Uh, her name was Elaine Kaplan, and she was a mathematician who had come to work for Gibson Cox her husband also worked there and her specialty was pr- propeller design so she took basic designs of earlier pro- pro- uh, propellers and she adapted them so that the, the ship would have four propellers the outboard propellers would have five blades sorry the outboard propellers would have four blades and the inboard propellers would have five and that design configuration would minimize vibration at high speeds and elaine Kaplan loved the ship i mean the the design team was very personally involved with the ship and her
0: daughter told me that her
1: mother called the ss united states her first
0: baby but she was not allowed to go on the ship out to sea during the the test trials
1: no uh gibbs was a very superstitious man and back then when you can get away with this he uh Women were not permitted on the trials, <laughs> so even Gibbs's own wife, apparently she she uh, toured the ship uh, before one set of trials, but then stepped off, and then the ship would come came back in. Uh, but it was it was a, he Gibbs was a sort of man who would not write a paragraph a, a letter with thirteen paragraphs. He would not set a table for thirteen, and he had this feeling that you know having a woman on board d- before the maiden voyage was not <laughs> was bad luck. Who all did you interview for this book? Um, well, I've interviewed a, a number of crew members who are, still, who are still alive, including a couple that were on the maiden voyage. And that was a really wonderful experience, getting to talk to them. A lot of them worked on this ship as in their teens or early 20s, uh, working as bellboys, working as waiters, uh, ship's photographers. And for them, this ship was more than just a job. It was there high school or college, home, workplace, all rolled into one. And uh, talking with them, it was just an incredible look into a lost era of what it was to work on a ship which was called one of the last of the floating Waldorf Astorias. And as one crew member told me, you know, some of the celebrities were incredibly nice. Uh, Salvador Dali apparently did a little sketch for um, uh, one of the crew members today's gift. As a, as a thank you, the problem was it was stolen. <laughs> but the sketch was apparently of the uh, Statue of Liberty and the Eiffel Tower reaching across the Atlantic and shaking hands. Um, I've interviewed, uh, I've talked, spoken with Susan Gibbs, who's the granddaughter of William Francis Gibbs. I've spoken with Laura Franklin Dunn, who's the daughter of uh, General Franklin, who's the president of the United States lines. And I feel very lucky to have Interviewed all these people, especially people that travel on the ship because this is a time when people that tr- travel on the ship as adults, a lot of them are dying, most of them have died off. You have a lot of people though who travel on the ship as kids and for them, you know, the ship was just like this, especially people who travel on the ship as kids, they, it was this wondrous experience for them. And, uh, and uh, one person uh, said that she was, she was African-American and she was traveling over to uh, Europe with her father who was an officer in the military, and she said what was miraculous about the SS United States was that there was no segregation on board, they were treated just like everyone else, they could use the pool, and it was remarkable, having come from the segregated South, to be treated this way. What was United States Lines, and what was the, the overlap between that and the government? Uh, the United States Lines was a private shipping company. It was kind of like the Pennsylvania Railroad of American shipping companies. It was, it was made most of its money in freight. It had a huge fleet of cargo ships. Uh, passenger ships were kind of a smaller part of the business. And the United States, during the 50s, they had the SS United States. And they also had the SS America, which is a much smaller ship. And she was also designed by William Francis Gibbs, although they looked very similar. Um, but according to the daughter of General Franklin, Passenger, the passenger ships were kind of like trophies, or kind of like figureheads, advertisements for the company. But what they really made their money was the shipping lines. Oh, sorry, was uh, freight. But the United States lines received generous construction subsidies from the government during the '40s and '50s. And uh, this is a time when the government did subsidize these transportation companies, often once again in case war should break out. How much say did the government have in their operation or their design?
0: Or everything uh, about? Not
1: so much in operations, um, although I actually I take that back. With the United States, uh, she was ha- she had to do a certain number of crossings per year, often because uh, U.S. servicemen would take the SS United States to and from Europe uh, as passengers, uh, and in fact during the late fifties and early sixties, when the ship began experiencing. Uh, declines in passenger lists because of uh, jet competition. The US lines said, can we do cruising in the winter? Because it's so unpleasant uh, during the winter, people aren't booking as much. And they really fought with the uh, government uh, to, um, to allow that to happen. Because the government's saying, well, we're subsidizing you to, to run a transatlantic schedule. And cruising, You know, what's the point of that? But eventually, they relented. But, yeah, the government was, this was a time when gov- big government and big business, they were pretty closely allied, um, especially these industrial or transportation companies. So the United States lines did receive a very large amount of subsidy from the government. How did the uh, SS United States handle storms? Uh, she was a roller, and she uh, did not, unlike a lot of older ships, she, did not, she almost never slowed down during rough weather. Um, maybe... Only if the ship really hit a hurricane would she slow down, but most of the time she kept going 30, 31 knots through some pretty heavy waves. Uh, she did not have stabilizers. This is before the era of stabilizers. She, she did roll a fair amount. And uh, side to side? Side like to that? side. And she, and, but she did have, because she was so light and so narrow at her bow, she would cut through the waves versus dropping or heaving like a lot of the big European ships. But, uh, yeah, she, she did roll. I mean, even as big as she was, she did roll. And uh, one of the quartermasters who steered the ship described her as being like a, a very, handling like a very kind of skittish colt. Like she, you had to sort of constantly uh, give attention to the helm because she would often <laughs> wander off course because she was so fast and so light. But, yeah, he basically said she, it was like steering a racehorse. Who was Captain Manning? Commodore Manning was the first captain of the SS United States, and he was one of these very remarkable uh, sorts of people who would command these ocean liners. He was uh, known as the best skipper on the Atlantic. He was a little guy; he was only about a little over five feet tall, spoke with a lisp, and didn't seem very—you know—he seemed kind of shy and awkward. But he was uh, known as someone who could—he could tango. Uh, he could play the piano. He could box, and he was a great navigator. And he was also one of his best friends in the 30s was Amelia Earhart. He had met her when he was ca- uh, commanding another ship, and she was on on that ship, and he became very good friends with her. In fact, Commodore Manning was supposed to was Amelia Earhart's co-pilot all the way to Hawaii on that ill-fated trip around the world. Uh, the airplane that they were traveling in, I think, had a crash landing, and had to be fixed. And Manning was on such a tight schedule, he couldn't wait around. So he left Hawaii, and got on board a ship. Amelia Earhart then took on board Fred Noonan as her co-pilot, and took off, and they were never seen again.
0: Was Captain Manning ever able to uh, open up the full, go full throttle with the SS United States?
1: Only during the trials, and in fact, he got fired from the United States lines on her second voyage because he was so happy to get a hold of this ship. He was told by William Francis Gibbs, on this maiden voyage, please don't break the Queen's record by very much. Please, if it's bad weather, slow down. We don't need to get this record right away. It'd be nice. He was, if they were, he was terrified of something going wrong. Well, as soon as they cleared the gates of New York Harbor, Commodore Manning gunned it. And they went up to 36 knots and uh, basically, and took away the wreck. And they steamed into a 60-mile-an-hour gale as they approached the coast of England. And the President of the United States, Lines and Gibbs are just freaking out, but he's the captain of the ship. But um, Manning got fired on the second voyage because he saw the Queen Elizabeth on the horizon. And they were leaving Southampton. And he just couldn't resist. He went up close to the Queen Elizabeth and gunned it and left her in her wake. And when asked, when they arrived in New York, were you racing the Queen Elizabeth? Uh, Manning said, no, there was no race. We just raced away from her. Uh, Manning was called into the offices of the United States Lions and fired
0: and replaced by Commodore Anderson. Was it big news when the ship would arrive in a harbor or, or depart or be launched? Oh,
1: it was huge news. I mean, this is a time when the shipping column doubled as, as the society page, and people would look to see who, which famous actor or movie star, or you know, European head of state or royal, or member of the royal family had arrived or, or was departing from New York. And uh, when the SS United States arrived for the first time in New York Harbor after her delivery from Newport News Shipbuilding in Virginia, she received this gigantic welcome you know, tugboats and fire. Fireboats, crowds lining the the Hudson, and the ship was opened up for one day before her maiden voyage. And you had a line of 10,000 people along the, the West Side Highway <laughs> wanting to get on board. You had people that came from all over the country who said, I, I have to get on the ship. They just wanted to see it. And um, apparently they couldn't take everyone on board, and when they closed the uh, tours at 5 o'clock, this enormous moan came up from the, <laughs> from the crowds who had traveled from far and wide to get on this tour. What was its last voyage? Uh, it was in November of 1969, and it was a routine transatlantic crossing. But the bad news was that she was supposed to take a round-the-world voyage at the time, and that was canceled. So there was like, okay, what's going on not here? Not enough business? Not enough business. or Well, there was, there was word that something was not right. And um, so she arrived in Newport News, Virginia for her annual overhaul. And they were painting her up and getting her ready, cleaning out all the cabins, just you know, basic maintenance work. And then they, the workers were told to stop work, drop everything. It turned out that it was that's when the US government said, we're not renewing subsidies for the operation of the ship anymore. Uh, the government had realized that planes are now carrying, they could use better use of planes, making it better use of planes to carry troops. So we don't need to have this ship as a possible troop transport. So the United States line said, well, we can't operate this ship without the subsidy. So she was laid up and was left to sit in Newport News for years and years. Had it been profitable over the years? She was profitable in the 50s uh, with that government subsidy. She made money for the company. But by the early 60s, she began losing money and by the late 60s with uh, labor strikes or the price of oil going up and just the decline of uh, passenger traffic she was losing millions of dollars a year
0: You say in your book that uh, one of the late uh, trips it took had more crew attending to the passengers than paying passengers That was
1: very common towards the end of the 1960s where you had these big ships that just had only a few hundred passengers and a thousand crew members. It, these ships became like ghost ships. And William Francis Gibbs thankfully I mean he mercifully died before he saw what ultimately happened to a ship. He died in 1967 and the ship was taken out of service in 1969. But he was so in love with the ship that every time she would come into New York Harbor he would drop everything he was doing, race down to the pier in the early morning and watch her come in and someone once asked her, Do you love this ship more than your wife? and he said, You're a thousand percent correct. But he 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 probably knew in his heart of hearts what was going on. He was hoping to build a sister ship in the late fifties and by that time the government said, We don't see the need for this. So this was the one he squeezed it in just at the right time when he could build his dream ship. Is this your first book? This is my first book.
0: Do you think you have another book in
1: you? Uh, I do, and uh, um, can't quite say what it is yet, but it is once again, it's about
0: Americans thinking big. Well, we've been speaking with Stephen Ujifusa, and he is the author of this book, A Man and His Ship, about the SS United States. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is books at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about P.A. Books.